This is supposed to be the big reveal. <laughs> oh, oh man. Nice. Oh, there we go. That's my crew jacket. There we go. Because you guys always dress up, I figure I would too. Oh man, and we did. He, see, I like a guy that knows what he's doing. <laughs> he's doing here, man. How you doing today, man? Good, man. I got the other one too. This is the jack. This is the crew jacket, right? It's reversed. Howard the Duck shooting crew. Uh -huh. And then this one. Hold on here. This is the one that Howard wears in the movie. Oh man. He yeah, oh I don't God. get a lot of occasions to wear either of these jackets. So, <laughs> all right, guys, we are very proud and very happy today. We have Mr. Miles Chapin. Mr. Miles Chapin began acting at an early age and gracefully transitioned his career as he grew up successfully to escape the subtle life to thrive in the world of New York real estate. He was in 1979's Hair, directed by the great Milos Forman, who He'd work with again nearly two decades later with the people versus larry Flint, and you know that's one of my personal favorites and man on the moon it's you know that's one of my personal favorites well you told me why <laughs> <laughs> i want to hear why <laughs> uh, oh there we go see i already got you one his other films i mean uh, it's go, just go jim oh. carrey being uh, one of our greatest of today being the greatest of yesteryear i mean you he still got it man more. you see something yeah. it was awesome working with him was awesome i'll tell you it's stories about that but carry on i want to hear more about me uh, there we go. See, see somebody who gets what we're doing here thank you because other films and television appearances include a uh, horror icon toby hooper's the fun house 1983 love that year the funny farm murder she wrote and of course he played carter on howard the duck he's also acted in broadway production and is an award-winning author thank you thank you thank you for being here mr miles Hey, my coming. pleasure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, best wardrobe of the season, I'm telling you. <laughs> you guys really did your homework, too. I got to say, I'm very impressed with all the scratching around you did. It's great. IMDb did not let us down this time. <laughs> well, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the information that's out there is junk. And, you know, I, I keep saying to myself, I got to go fix my Wikipedia page. But... I don't care, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> that's what I mean, everybody that, says. It's like, no, yeah. But it's also that's the secret. If you know these 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 celebrities that sort of say, "Oh, I don't like being in the public eye; it's such a drag." It's like, well, then be boring, you know. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Because like don't give them anything to write about. So you know. <laughs> that's what I like about Miley Cyrus. She says, "I like being in the public eye." Here is my butt. There you go. I've seen that. I've seen that. Like, you get what you yeah. Uh, respect. Very oh, honest. <laughs> Your uh, your first credited role was at the age of nine in Ladybug. Ladybug. That's right. Um, we had a little bit of a, a miscommunication. IMDb failed me. I assumed that because two people had the same last name that they were brothers, but that was not the case. Yeah. Yeah. But it, as far as your family goes, I, I bring it up because your mother was the descendant of the man responsible for the the, the Steinway piano. That's right. uh, your father operated the Metropolitan Opera and the Lincoln Center for the Performance Ar Performing Arts, as well as was the Commissioner of Cultural Cultural Affairs of New York City. Yeah. And your oldest brother Henry is a musician. Um, Clearly, you grew up in a family that prioritizes the arts. I was wondering if you could talk about what that what that was like growing up in that kind of a family and how that led to your career in acting. Sure. Yeah. Well, it was, it was pretty intense. That's what it was like. No, I, I uh, what was honored and what was valued in the household I grew up in was uh, artistry, uh, creative expression. 
and um, it had been going back generations in both sides of my family. On my mother's side, which was the Steinways, um, you know, they had a great appreciation, of course, for piano players because that's was to, you know put their their instrument on the on the map. But on my father's side, same thing. I mean, my father wanted to be a concert pianist, and then he was told that he had no talent, so he went into the music business. You know, classic page boy at NBC. Uh, you know, worked his way up to being the cultural affairs uh, uh, commissioner for the city of New York, and also the dean of the School of the Arts at Columbia University, which for somebody who doesn't even have a high school diploma was pretty good, pretty good stuff. So, you know, this was this. There was four of us. I'm the youngest of four boys, and this was this was the currency. And uh, my father was working at Columbia Records um, when I was young. When I was born, he was uh, touring with Yasha Heifetz, the violin player, uh, as his personal manager. So I was around artists and, and great musicians my entire life. And this was what everybody wanted to be. And I kind of made the leap, you know, from backstage to the front of stage. And it was, it was, it was quite something. I mean, I was a real character and I was young. I was like the funny fat kid, you know, and there's always a funny fat kid around. So, uh, shuffle, shuffle. I was just thinking about that. Yeah, shuffle, no, shuffle. yeah, no, it's, I have a story about that too. Cause I, I lost a lot of weight and then I got, cause I did a movie called bless the beast and children, a Stanley Kramer movie. And then I lost a bunch of weight. And then I got a phone call out of the blue from this casting director who had this role for me. He was tracking me down, couldn't find me. It's called Animal House. It's going to be great. And I said, oh, yeah, you don't know what I look like anymore. So I went to the audition with my girlfriend and she ended up in the movie and I didn't. So that was, you know, that was that. But it was it was just the bar was set pretty high in my family for uh, achievement. Um, and so that's, you know, it's a, it's a blessing and a curse at the same time. Um, yeah, wow. I, I can imagine. I don't know what you're going to be, but you're going to be be something. So choose it. Like, yeah. do it now. Do it. Uh, that's well, that's it. That's it. You know, I mean, we're giving lessons to our kids, whether we think we're doing it or not, you know, and um, just by conversation, you know, you learn more around the dinner table, you know, than right. you do anywhere else. I always think that, that being in an artistic family is one of the best things ever. And while I didn't have a completely artistic family, I just remember some of the things I learned. Like my mom, she put me into not necessarily playing piano, but I had to learn how to read music at an early age. Yeah. And I was like, I'm never going to use this. This and then you, you grow up, you start seeing things and you're in film. You're talking about the score and crescendos. And you're like, yeah. no, I know what those notes mean. It all starts yeah. coming back to you. And it's, it's one of those a different language. My stepdad tried to put me in YMCA basketball and it backfired for all time. <laughs> You showed him. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is that. You, you can't push too hard, you know. You got to pull back a little bit. But uh, I just didn't push at all. That's there you go. There. No, it's funny. I was having I was having this discussion with somebody just yesterday about how we wish we played the piano because wherever you go, there's a piano there, and if you can sit down and play the piano, make music, then everybody's gonna like you, you know. And uh, you know, we all had to take music lessons. I, I I played the oboe. I was a woodwind guy, and I had one brother played the piano, one played the violin, one played the cello. You know, but it's it's uh, it's important. But I mean, I grew up before the Hansons. <laughs> before we get into Howard the Duck, I wanted to ask you. You oh, yeah. you worked. You mentioned working with Stanley Kramer. You've also worked yeah. with Billy Wilder. Would you yeah. mind telling us about that? Billy Wilder. Yeah. Billy Wilder had more energy on that set than anybody else. And I don't know how he was like in his 80s. I mean, he was just a living legend. And ev everybody was just 
in awe of Billy Wilder. I mean, the day players would show up with all these Billy Wilder biographies and books and screenplays and in the honey wagon, we'd pass them back and forth. And he was just uh, uh, amazing. I mean, amazing, complete professional. That was the most professional set I've ever been on. You know, Jack Lemmon, Walter Matthau. In fact, I was, I play this like bellhop who discovers Jack Lemmon's character, tries to hang himself in the shower in this hotel. And I am outside delivering champagne because he thinks he's going to you know, have an affair with his wife. And I hear the water and I take out my key and I open it up and you know, there he is lying in the bathtub with all the water going and I have to go in and try to fix the tub and there's water spraying, you know, spraying everywhere. And five o'clock came and it was like, cut, cut. Okay, we'll pick this up tomorrow. And you know, I'm drenched in water. It's like, okay, nine o'clock the next morning, get back drenched in water. You know, a lot of people finish the sequence. No, we'll just pick it up where we left it off. It's interesting. I had the pleasure once of uh, being at a party and introducing uh, uh, Billy Wilder to John Lindsay, the former mayor of New York City. That's definitely one of the highlights of my life. <laughs> Billy, John Lindsay, John Lindsay, Billy Wilder. You know. Dude, I've, I've never been to a party with you, but I'm just going to bring you with me. It's no story he's not going to be able to. He can keep everybody entertained for the entire party, no matter what party. Well, now, I've always said I'm the kind of guy you want to sit next to at dinner. It's true. You know? Or a bar. I'm telling you, either way, it's going to be a good time. For sure. All right. But uh, let's talk about setting the bar. And we're going to talk about Howard the Duck here. So uh, you played Carter, teamed yeah. up with Phil Blumberg, yeah. played by the great Tim Robbins, and of yeah. course, uh, and Doctor Walter Jennings, played by the unfortunately disgraced Jeffrey Jones. This right. wasn't the first time you worked with writer director Willard Hyatt. Right. Having started his 1979 film right. French Postcards, now right. was a professional relationship formed during the French Postcard film that resulted in your role in Howard the Duck, or was it just happenstance? No, it was definitely the relationship. I mean. We shot French postcards on location in Paris for six months, and we had a ball. I mean, it was just, it was Willard and Gloria's first movie that they were doing on their own. You know, they'd written American Graffiti. They'd done a rewrite on Star Wars. Um, for young young actors, Blanche Baker, David Marshall Grant, Valerie Kennison, Deborah Winger, Mandy Patinkin, you know, we're all working in Paris, for God's sake. You know, we all, we got along really well. Uh, and then going back to in LA, I was spending a lot of time in LA at that time and Gloria and Willard became very close friends of mine. And all during the writing of Howard the Duck, it was, you know, I can't believe you're writing a movie of Howard the Duck. I mean, it was just the, the idea was just so mind boggling. And then I was doing um, a play in the Berkshires, summer stock in the Berkshires of Massachusetts. And they called me and they said, we need your help. And I said, what for? Well, they gave us the green light for Howard the Duck. And I said, what are you kidding me? And they said, no, no, George is on board as executive producer in the studio said, yes, but we have to get it ready for Christmas. I think it was 87. So we have 15 months to get this movie made, you know, and I said, well, I can't, you know, what do you want me to do? Anything, just get out here, you know, first casting the duck. No, I can't. I'm not a casting person. So I, I finished the play, went out to San Francisco and, um, I had about four weeks of pre-production, and then I was on every single day of production of that movie. Uh, it's funny because you inspired me. I took out my file folder of Howard the Duck. I actually have a call sheet from the last day of, of, of production, of first, you know, first unit production. Then I went on to the second unit um, because what happened was they basically said, we trust you. You're an actor. We're filmmakers and writers. You know, we hate actors, as most of them do, um, but we can talk to you. So just sort of get the sense of what's going on with, with Howard the Duck, with Howard, the character. So obviously walking around, everybody knew that I had the confidence of the director and the producer who were these married couple. So everybody gave me, you know, full access and a lot of respect. 
And after about a week or two, I went back to them and I said, guys, listen, you've got, you've got puppeteers working over here doing a puppet, and you've got these dwarfs over here that are being fitted for all these, these, these suits. You've got these creature makers that are making these mechanisms to make this duck bill move, but you've got nobody playing a character here. And this, this script has got, I mean, he's got every, he's in every scene, he's got every funny line, and there's nobody minding the store. And they said, yeah, that's a good point. And I said, so that's what you need. And they said, great, that's what you do. So that's when they said, you're the duck coach. So I said, okay, this is the first thing I want to do. I want everybody who's got anything to do with performing the duck. And it was about 40 or 50 people. I mean, everybody from the Polish guy who's making the mechanism that makes the eyeballs move to the, the, the wardrobe girl who's gluing feathers onto the latex. I want everybody for an hour every other morning in a room together. Why? Well, I don't know. I, we got to get to know each other. We got to get to know Howard. So I started showing them um, Honeymooners episodes, you know, Ralph Cramden. And I said, okay, guys, this is Howard the Duck. Now, look, at what, look what happens when Ralph Cramden walks into that room. Bang! He's everywhere. Pow! Zoom! I mean, it's bigger than life. And it's, it just, it broadcasts. I said, this is what we need for Howard the Duck. And then, of course, when we started shooting, we had tremendous technical problems because that was right at the end of the era of practical effects. In fact, while we were shooting at ILM, they were doing what I believe is the first uh, CGI in any major picture, which was the uh, young Sherlock Holmes, you know, that sequence with the stained glass window, which took them like so six we, months. We, we talked, we just talked to Brennis about all that. Yeah. That ILM there, yeah. That's, yeah. So how, and at the same time, they were doing um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which was a similar kind of, you know, expanding the territory. Let's put live action in a cartoon. But with Howard the Duck, we went practical. So everything is on the set. And we had hand puppets, close-up puppets. We had dwarves in suits with radio-controlled heads. We had stunt dwarfs. I mean, it was just, it was, it was all over the place. But it took a lot of time. So, you know, a movie, you know, movie crew arrives at a set, you know, the director and the photographer, they want to go and like block out the scene, you know, and, and I would go because it took like an hour or two for Ed Gale to put on the suit, right? And so I'd go and I'd sort of be Howard and Willard would say, okay, no, so Howard comes running down this staircase and then he spins around and goes over here. And I'd say, well, that's great, except he can't run because Ed inside the suit can't see outside. He can only see out the bill when the bill is open. Um, and uh, so, okay, I can give you like quick steps. His hand's got to be on the railing. I mean, I knew the limitations. And then Ed had a little thing in his ear uh, that the main puppeteer, uh, uh, Tim Rose, was operating the, the beak. And he was in the next room and it was all radio control. We had a whole duck unit. We had our own slave cameras and we had our own communication system so that Ed was hearing the lines and he was kind of miming while this was going on. But he was sweating inside that suit, and so the, the eyeballs would, would completely uh, uh, fog up, and literally he could only see out of the beak. And so we had all these fans and special chairs for him because uh, it, was, it took like an hour or two to put the suit on and take it off. I mean, he'd take it off for lunch, you know, take off the gloves, the boots, but basically the whole body part of it, I mean, it just practical effects. It's funny, I got to, let me show you this. I'm going to go into my file. Literally, my, this is my Howard the Duck file. And I haven't opened this in years, but I found a picture. I don't know if you can. If you can I mean, dude, you are Howard. That's can you see this picture? Yeah. That's yeah. Ed, Ed Gale's mouth inside the Howard the Duck. Yeah. There's something very horrific about that. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that creepy? Very creepy. And then, of course, you know, we had to. Um, 
we had to, uh, you know, he spent a lot of downtime in that suit. So, like, we used to sing songs. So he was a big Elvis fan. I used to tell the dirty jokes and stuff. And sometimes, you know, he'd be sitting there and he'd, all of a sudden he'd start vibrating from laughter and somebody would say, Howard, what's going on? Howard, what's going on? You know, so. Oh I mean, we invented the wheel. We had to invent the wheel. It's the kind of thing, it's funny yes. because a couple of years later, I mean, I, it's like what Andy Serkis does, does, you know, it's what he did. You know, because uh, it, it was all like we're making it up as we go along. We just want to get the shot. We just want to get it get it done. You know. But listening to your story, I think was integral. And I don't think a lot of people know this. Like there was no soul to the duck. I mean, like you say, you have all these people working on something, but nobody is saying, what's the finished product? Like if we're going to tell this story, yeah. like you say, hey, we want it. There's one person saying we want him running this way. And you're yeah. like, yeah, I, that, in theory, that's great. But practical wise, he's going to be doing a little. Exactly. You need this. You need that. And like I said, exactly. without you bringing these people together, how do they know? Well, that's it. I mean, you think of E.T., right? Where the lead character, E.T., you know, right? E.T., what, what, did, what did E.T. say? Photo. That was it, right? But that script was structured so well that a light bulb goes off inside the puppet and everybody starts crying, right? Yeah. See, but Howard the Duck was just the opposite. I mean, because this duck's got to get preapic, he's got to smoke cigars, you know, it's like... So, you know, it, but it was, it, I mean, it's, it was a really tough road to hoe. You know, so Marvel's come a long way. <laughs> well, now, I mean, this whole this whole renaissance is amazing. I mean, Willard sent me this uh, the Hollywood Reporter article, a link to that, which blew my mind. I'm sure you've read that article, you know. And and Leah was saying the same thing. I'm saying is that you know it's it's a character, and so you got to actors know characters and know how to play comedy. And we were very limited with how fast we could speak because it was the you know the speed of that little motor. Because all those motors could do is turn one way or the other way because it's adoptive technology from model airplanes, these little things. So all the mechanisms making the eyeball move had to, had to be reduced from a little motor the size of a matchbox doing this or that. Incredible. I don't care where the, the, his like dialect and the way he, he gave his lines because of the limitations of the animatronics, it, gave, it only contributed to like this noir feeling of yeah. it, it's like a, a noir character yeah. in a comic book movie trying to be a kid's film. Exactly. But that's also one of the reasons that it didn't work out with Robin Williams. Um, I mean, that what's in that story is, is, is not correct. Okay. I mean, I, I have another thing from the file here. So here's, okay. this is, this is a piece of paper dated February 17th, 1986. It's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven pages of people that screen tested for the voice of Howard the Duck. Wow. And some of them were people that I suggested and we brought them up to the set. And some of them were people that casting people did. I mean, on the, the first page is people te already tested by Lucasfilm. Martin Short, John Biner, Jay Leno, Joe Regalbudo, Robert Picardo, Robin Williams, Ernie Facilius, Mike Pritchard, Howie Mandel, he was one of my ideas, Kevin mm -hmm. Pollack, John Lithgow, another one of my ideas, Chip Zion, Jeff Goldblum, Eugene Levy, and some of these guys like uh, uh, Jeff Goldblum, Jay Leno, and Robin, they came to the set and I showed them around and showed them all the tricks and, um, and Robin just talks too fast. It just, it just, mm. he, it just couldn't make it. It just, you know, mm. but in his screen test, he did some improvs, which kind of ended up in the movie. I've got to say, <laughs> really? yeah. yeah, that line about get, get ready to eat beak. That's, <laughs> that's a Robin Williams improv right there. Yeah. That's awesome. awesome. I think, I think Kevin Pollack would have, would have done really well too. Yeah. And well, it goes on, it goes on from here. Here's a list of people that are not interested. Billy Crystal. <laughs> 
Rick Moranis, Dave Thomas, Griffin Dunn, Jimmy Brogan, Harry Anderson, Michael McKean, Wallace Shawn, Henry Winkler, Richard Dreyfus, Albert Brooks, Christopher Guest. And here's here's the list. This is an entire page. This list is this is titled Already Taped in LA. Okay. Wow. This is this is people we're checking with. Christopher Lloyd, Howard Hessman, Alan Arkin, Ron Silver, John Candy, Paul Sand, Ron Palillo. I mean, you know. Here's, these are the unsolicited tapes. These are the people that sent in tapes that weren't asked to send in the tapes. And here's here's the people that taped in New York, you know. So those uh, unsolicited tapes, has got, they've got to be like diehard comic book fans. Like, it oh, is. I've got a voice that I It is. It is. It's, it's, it's nobody I've ever heard of. Uh, well, one, 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 one actor I know who shall remain nameless, but I, you okay. know, he's, you know, he's, he's, I mean, I know him slightly, but you wouldn't have heard of him. But, you know, it was, it was a big, high-profile project. I mean, it was, you know, and it was George Lucas, too, and his name was yeah. Magic, you know. Yeah, it's one of the reasons yeah. we got canned in the, um, by the, the critics, too, I think, is that, like, finally they can say, you know, get the daggers sharp for George Lucas. Finally, we've got something. Oh, boy, we can, you know, we can dig on him, yeah. you know. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Right. Exactly. I mean, he changed the world with that yeah. one film, and all of a sudden, they think everything yeah. is going to be that. Like, no, yeah. that, that's actually a good segue into a question I had about okay. the, the it, it, I mean, for us, it holds a special place in our hearts. We saw it when we were young, and we're also filmmakers, so we can see when there's there's, this was obviously taken seriously by the people that made it as yeah. far as like the technical side getting it made you know, all yeah. the work that goes into just making a movie and it's competently made but it, and it's but it it was not critically received well and we're just wondering like i mean who cares what the critics think what was your initial reaction to it and how do you look back at it now okay that's a really good question and i got to come at that from a couple of different angles um, first of all, it's a cliche. Nobody ever sets out to make a bad movie. You know, I mean, it kind of makes you wonder what would happen if somebody did set out to make a bad movie. In fact, I worked on a screenplay and developing about just that. Um, but over time, and you see what's happening on the set and you watch the dailies and it's just like this, you kind of realize, oh my God, this could be like, you know, a real stinker. But you got to get out of bed in the morning. So how do you do that? you got to find something to hang on to. It's sort of like the cliche of actors having to love their characters, you know? You've got to find, you've got to find something to, to pin your coat on with the character. And you got to find something to get you out of bed in the morning. Um, I, I was prepared for the worst. Uh, I really was. Um, I also, I was in touch with my family and my, my brothers, especially my brother, Ted, who's the one who runs the Rogers and Hammerstein organization, you know, and I have lots of nieces and nephews and stuff, you know, and I didn't have any kids then. I have kids now, but, um, and I was sending back all kinds of t-shirts and Howard the Duck stuff and all my kids, like four years old, five years old, my nieces and nephews, oh, Howard the Duck, this is going to be great. And then my brother, Ted came to see it at a screening. And I think it was when that, that Jeffrey's character, the tongue comes out and goes into the light socket and the, and my brother turned to me and he said, my daughter is not going to see this movie. And I thought, wow. okay, this is, this is, this is something, this is something here. So no, nobody is, nobody's prepared for that. But again, from my, um, uh, my, my, uh, <laughs> my bag of tricks here, this is the first review that I saw in a San Francisco paper. Okay. The date book, this is a, uh, Gerald Nachman at the movies. It's also the only review that mentions me. So I have that in here. It says, I'm the, someone credited as the duck coach, and then in parentheses it says, Miles Chapin, who did a yeoman job. 
my God. Thank you very much. Tell yeah. how you really feel. Goodness yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, actors and reviews, you know, Diana Rigg, the actress, Diana Rigg, you know, she actually wrote a book or it was a compendium of actors remembering their worst reviews. And it's a, it's a great book. The title is, oh, is yeah. the title is good. The title is No Turn Unstoned. Mm, and, you know, I mean, I can quote uh, the New York Review, uh, uh, New York Magazine Review of French Postcards because it compared me to dog food. You know, it compared our work to dog food. It's like, OK, you know, I don't remember the good reviews. You remember the bad reviews. So, yeah, yeah I can quote you a few, a few reviews that I've caught. An American Vulture called me the most uh, egotistical uh, <laughs> But, and and claimed that everybody in my circle had to be enabling me in order to that. allow me to be so uh, confident to do such a horrendous long piece of work. I remember yeah. that. One. Yeah, the, the, they stick a lot deeper. They do, the, they do. But it's also when you when you begin to work in the in the real community, professional community. Yeah, everybody gets bad reviews. No, you know, I mean, it's not that people don't read them. It's just like people don't care. You know, it's yeah. like the, the, the work, the proof's in the pudding. You know, I mean, it's when the rubber hits the road. You know. Some of my favorite movies are some of the critics' least favorite movies. I don't pay attention. I don't really pay attention to what it's such a film and art in general is such a like a unique experience for each person. Correct. Yeah. Like, there's no, like, so, but even if they say they love something, that still may not be how you feel. Like you say, it's a, you, mm -hmm. art, art is to be interpreted. And the moment you start telling me about it, it's no longer the same art. Well, not only that, but if somebody says you're about to see the greatest thing you've ever seen, where, where can you go from there? Except, yeah. you know, forget it. Now, speaking forget of that, it. let me ask you this. Now, yeah. would you think, uh, would you, would you think would be the, because you know it's a practical, the practical, you're the duck coach. So technically, the way they did it now, of course, Guardians of the Galaxy and then Marvel right. Avengers Endgame, they right. went CGI. So let me ask right. you this. Would you be interested in seeing it remade or reimaged now? And if so, what different approach could they take if, if you if you were well you know i've actually never thought about that but yeah no because the character in the comic book is so cool and i don't think we did full justice to it and it, it's a, it's a great character but you need you need something you need cgi i mean cgi can do it because that duck's got to be propulsive he's got to he's got to propel every single scene he's got to be explosive he's got to be hilarious and uh you know, we, I don't think we, we, we fulfilled the prophecy, <laughs> you know, I mean, Seth, I don't think we, we didn't do Seth it. Seth Rogen could voice it. They did a new one. I can see Seth Rogen voice in it. Uh, well, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Green, isn't it? Who's, who's, who's really been doing the voices, isn't it? Seth Green? Seth Green. Yeah, uh, Seth Green. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I read that. That was in that, uh, yes. that Hollywood Reporter article. You know, more power to him. Great. You know, call me. I'm available. I can do something, you know. There you go. Uh, you, you having like a, uh, that relationship with Willard I've heard I've seen like YouTube commentators put out there that you know Howard the Duck was received so badly that or critically that um that that was the reasoning for Willard Hayek's last credit as a director yeah. is there any truth of that or was there or well I mean he he got blamed you know he was the fall guy you know I mean George Lucas was untouchable so somebody's got to you know, shovel the shit, right? Or have the shit right. shoveled on him. And that's Willard, you know. And and Willard, you know, Willard's hanging in there and he's still living. I mean, Gloria left us about a year and a half ago. Uh, and Willard sold his house uh, and moved into a, an apartment uh, in Beverly Hills. He's got a new girlfriend and uh, he's writing. He keeps writing, you know. And, and I think he's more at home uh, as a writer than he is with uh, on a set. 
because you know it's it's uh, it's a different set of muscles that you're using, and it's a, it's a different set of skills that you need. And uh, you know, directing a film is just, just so many people asking you so many questions, and you got to get along with so many people. And Wilder's much more um, quiet, and and I mean, his wit is like a is like a stiletto. I mean, it's just you know, that's one of the reasons I love the guy. It's just you know, he's he's a really pleasure to be with. I mean, we went skiing once. And we're at the top of this mountain, and we're there. We're sort of looking down. Neither him and I are very good skiers. We're looking down the slope, and we have our goggles up here. And he looked at me, and goes, "And now the Nazis are chasing us." And I said, "Yes, let's go quick!" And we put on the thing, and we're like going down. You know, it's that kind of humor, and and it's, it's just, it's too bad. It, it's too bad, you know. But I mean, his his he he does a lot of uncredited rewrites and stuff too. I mean, he's he's you know, he's in the pantheon. But uh, yeah. I just find it unfair. Like you, everybody, you know, it's, it's the old adage, hey, if the football team loses, you blame the coach and the quarterback. But when you see a film, like anyone who knows anyone, there are a million names that go scroll yeah. that into that thing, but one yeah. person gets blamed and it's unfair. Yeah, no, it is. It is totally unfair. And he's a sensitive guy too, you know. And, uh, and as to whether, you know, he was offered things and turned them down or whether we tried to get things made, I don't know. That's, 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 that's his business, not mine, you know. I mean, I love the guy. I support him. He's, he's a friend, you know. That's the most important thing to me. Yeah, I mean, I, he, he is an important part of my childhood. So yes. I, there's a weird part of me. It's like, I just, I just want the best for that dude because he gave me some really good memories when I well, was yeah. And when you get to know him and then you see like uh, like in American Graffiti, there there's there's a moment where Charlie Martin Smith, somebody and he see he's like bullshitting this girl and he goes, Hunting, yeah, I'm going hunting this weekend. And he goes, Hunting? You mean you're like killing defenseless animals? And he's got he's nonplussed. He goes, Well, bears. I mean, I thought bears would be okay. <laughs> you know, that is so Willard Hike. You know, and when he when he lets the fart rip in the car, and somebody goes, "Ooh, ka-ooh, cut the cheese!" That that is so Willard Hike. And if you know him, you see those moments. You know, but that's you know, it's like with any writer, especially a comedy writer. You know, when you get to know the personality, it's like yeah, well, you see signature. them. Yeah, yeah, you can yeah. see it. Uh, you spend a lot of your time on screen in Howard the Duck with Tim Robbins, and uh, I'm a I mean, who isn't a big fan of Tim? Like, if you have something bad to say about Tim Robbins, I question your ethics. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> I certainly don't. Yeah. What, what was it like working with him? Well, Tim. Tim is. Um, I mean, Tim's Tim is a very big talent, and um, and oh. uh, he. I, I think, especially on the second unit of Howard the Duck, when basically all he had to do was sit there and go, whoa. Oh, flying this airplane, you know, he, he was not into that. And so, you know, if, if he was recalcitrant from coming out of his trailer, they'd send me in to sort of pal him up because, you know, he'd be in there watching old movies or something and I didn't hang with him. I mean, he's, he's a phenomenally talented individual. And, you know, his career hadn't really broken by the time Howard the Duck was done. And I saw, you know, a dozen screen tests for people playing that role. And he was just like a hundred percent there in that screen test and it was just so obvious that he should play it and it, it i don't think that character in that movie i mean that was like maybe seven percent of what tim has to offer but basically you know it's howard's movie that's the thing you know mm-hmm. and it's funny uh tim's got a son named miles too oh there we go yeah I, I think Susan Sarandon is the mother of, of young Miles, who's probably in his 30s now, but yes, yes. what are you going to do? Let me, ask, let me ask you this now. Uh, it's a two-parter. Do you have a favorite memory from the production uh, from Howard the Duck that you'd like to share? And also, 
Is there anything else from the production that you think fans of the film would like to know? Maybe something they haven't seen online or heard or anything? Yeah, uh, well, that's, those are biggies. Um, I mean, I, I, for me, the, the, the experience of being in the Bay Area for nine months uh, and getting paid enough money that on the day off I had a week, I could basically, you know, go to any restaurant I wanted and pick up the check for six people, you know, and get my car fixed was just like brilliant. Um, but there, it was funny because you, 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 you gave me a heads up that you were going to ask this kind of question. And the one, the one thing that, that I remember, uh, and this is, a, this is actually a pretty good story. I mean, I mentioned Robin Williams before, and Ro Robin's a great guy. And this also has to do with Tim, because the fact that I'm from New York, uh, and so is Tim Robbins, you know, you get a certain credibility, and so is Paul Guilfoyle. Like, if you're New York actors, you, you know that, like, I can talk to you, okay? So Robin, I met years ago when he was going to Juilliard, because one of his classmates was Mandy Patinkin, uh, and Mandy and my brother Ted were roommates. They had an apartment together. So I, I, I mean, Mandy, like, came in one day and goes, God, there's this guy in my class. He's so funny he's just like he and he never goes to class he just goes in the bathroom like you know riffing and he's so funny and then i met robin and it was like holy shit this guy's just amazing and so when he came out you know i met him at the airport or met him wherever and it was like you know i'm going to be your guide and he goes yeah, yeah i kind of remember you so uh we showed him around and and george loved robin they were great friends so there was one night on the set where uh, it was a really stormy night in San Francisco. And you know, when it gets rainy and stormy in the Bay Area, it's really rainy and stormy too. And tensions were rising high because we had the set of uh, Beverly's uh, apartment, her kind of loft, you know, which was funny because Gloria and Willard had come to New York a year before and I had taken them to dinner at a friend of mine's loft, a friend of mine who's a photographer, and they loved it. They wanted to recreate this loft. So they sent the art director up to that loft and they took all these pictures and they, sort of recreated it. So anyway, we're up in the set of this loft and the trouble was the rain was so loud that the sound crew was picking it up. So we were losing a lot of time and Willard was getting really hot under the collar, okay? And so, like I said before, we, you know, we all the duck people had these earwigs and we could talk to each other, I had a little microphone, you know, I've got pictures of that too. Um, and all of a sudden uh, I saw Howard, cause we would shut Howard down in between takes to save the batteries. So all of a sudden I saw the face just going like this, like this. And I'm like, what's going on? What is going on back there? And then I heard this voice, oh, Earth, Earth to Howard, Earth to Howard, like this. And it was Robin had like found his way onto the set, gone back to where the puppeteers were and was just like playing. You know, he had the slave camera and he was making the mouth go and he's like talking into the mic. It's like Wizard of Oz. It's like, you know, somebody stumbling in past the curtain and going, oh, look, I can make the smoke machine work. And I was like, not now, Robin, shut the fuck up, please. We're having a meltdown here. No, not now, you know, because he would drop by. But that was that was just one of those like, holy shit, if we survive this, you know, we're going to get uh, stripes on our sleeve or something, you know, so. Wow. Uh, a new story that ends with Robin, shut the fuck up. This is uh, Robin Williams actually watching over us. Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, this is character from Smoochie. What a sweet guy. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yes. You know, and just a just brilliant, just brilliant. Now, being with him was so easy because you could just like, it's like feeding the birds. It's like, here. How about this? And then he would take that and run with it. It was like, how about this? You know, and, and I, you know, like he would exhaust a lot of actors who were kind of like felt they tried to keep up with him. No, forget it. Why, you know, he, try? why don't even try? Don't just leave Stop. him in the dust. Stop.
but he was he was a real real sweetheart you know he really was uh, and he i mean he had he had free reign on the set he used to come around a lot and stuff but that night was just like and as you say who gets to say shut the fuck up to robin williams <laughs> <laughs> who would even want to well i mean uh, you were put in the position to i hear what saying so you're like wait no this there's fuel and there's a fire i need to keep them away from me exactly exactly let me no, let me no, no. let me let me show no, you a no, couple no. more of these pictures this is this is me in, on the second unit me and tom wright who was the second unit director and we're up on the camera car looking and i'm sort of pointing something out like you know this is the way it has to be you know do you remember uh, where that what, what scene? Oh, we no. That was in, that was well. The Tom Wright, the second unit. What we did was mostly the stunt work on the air flying sequences. That's what I thought. I you know, just, yeah. For some reason, the color of the sky made me think of the. Yeah. The well, it was all done pieces and pieces. I mean, the town that the parade was, where we did, did the gag with the truck, that was in the Delta area. The marsh with the duck hunters, that was in the in the Sacramento River Delta. Uh, Novato, we shot some scenes in Novato, and then they tried to make it work uh and there's i mean i've got a i've got a picture of the second unit here wait a minute bear with me yeah here's the here's this here's the second unit okay this is well this is the cast and crew photograph in the on the, the this is duck world the miniature duck world in the opening but this is this quack, is the quack, quack. <laughs> the cast and crew and this was we you can see in tape here it says the dangler because the, the airplane was dangling from here and the cameras were kind of strapped in there. And this was, you know, the Hardys. So, this is so yeah. awesome seeing a picture of that thing because Marty Brennis was just telling us about that uh, crane that was well, that was holding the thing. Mm -hmm. And he was like, he was talking about how the guy was so precise with it that there wasn't enough room for wiggles. Like, like give it a little slack. Well, I mean, you you know those guys are are hot dogs. I mean, you know, and the stunt helicopter, the stunt pilot who drove his own helicopter to the set every day, he would do like three sixties in the helicopter when he left. You know, eat my dust kind of thing. But here's here's a picture that kind of this is what I did on Howard the Duck. Okay, there's me talking to Ed Gale. You see, I got the script in my hand, and I've got the headphones on. Emilio Estevez ain't got shit on you. You're the real duck coach. All right. I'll tell you that right now. I saw, Thank like, you. I Thank saw you. another picture of you of him in like an alley. Like it looked like you were having a heart to heart with Howard when I did the Google search. Oh yeah. It's, well, like, that, it's, I, it's like an autograph picture that Yeah, no, but that's that I don't have that anymore because I work with this guy for fan conventions and I think he's got it because that's the one way I sign at fan conventions. And I'm kind of sitting there smoking a cigarette and we're in an alley. Mm. That was a, the night we did the dikes on bikes. And I'm just like talking with him because Ed Gale and I got to be really close friends, you know, you spend a lot of time. I mean, here, this is another one, me and Ed, you know, there we are in the doctor's oh office, so good, you know, man. here I am oh, hiding in the shadows with my little microphone, you know, trying to stay out of the way. <laughs> it was I funny because like, like the guy from like to imagine is that like 50 years from now your uh, great grandchildren or your grandchildren they don't know that movies exist or howard the duck exists they just find these pictures with no context you're like what the fuck well their it's it, you know we're not gonna have to wait for the generations because i got two kids and well my son he's not here right now but they don't like movies they don't care i don't think they've ever seen howard the duck i know i know well i didn't i didn't i didn't force them to care about my work so you know Here's, here's another one. The opposite. The, the, what's so funny the way generations were. You know, my my dad made made creativity such an important thing. I'm going to you go your own way, and the apple did roll. Yeah. Well, he also it'll come back. It's like a it's a boomerang thing. 
yeah. there's me and uh, and Howard and that's Willard and we're at the Kitty Land which I think is where they, they find the airplane uh, mm-hmm. which was in the Na- uh, lower Napa Valley down in Carneros you know that is so cool yeah oh here's me and Willard just kind of laughing and scratching together hanging out on set yeah it was weird because people would come to the set and and uh, you know I mean I got a plenty healthy ego but I don't need to have it stroked all the time so like I'd be off in the corner and I'd be doing my thing like this and I'd be talking to these people so obviously like you know I would say Willard and he would say what and I would come over like you know I would get everybody's attention if I needed it so like when the guy from Rolling Stone came he finally pulled me aside he said excuse me I've got to ask you this question who the fuck are you? And I said, well, I'm you know, the duck, I'm the duck coach, bitch. <laughs> I should have said that. Yeah, there you go. Please but it was like, it, it was just like, I'm, I'm no, I'm nowhere, man. You know, I'm just the guy that, that, that helps, helps pull these strings, you know? Yeah. But it's funny because, you know, a lot of people, there's one that, that said, if you want to find out about Howard, that's the guy you need to talk to, you know? But, uh, you know, it's also a lot of it is press the digitation, you know, people don't want to see the strings, you know? Yeah. That's that's what I mean. I, I when I saw Dark Coach on IMDb, I could have never. He called imagined. me. He was like, "Do you know what this is?" I was like, "I'm not even gonna lie, no." And it, it is more than fulfilled my expect like yeah. expectations here. What happened way up here? Well, it's um, funny. It's funny that you mentioned uh, or we started talking about the character Carter that I played because originally that was supposed to be another actor um, who got a better job and and uh and took it and so they had to replace him so gloria said to me oh by the way uh jason's not showing up next week you're gonna play carter and i said oh great who's gonna do my job she went oh anybody can do your job and i said oh really oh here and i i, I handed her and she tried to do it and it was just you know I, my point was made there you, well, go. you were you were perfect i that your role even as a kid stood out to me because you were such a like you're one of those characters that as soon as you came on the screen it felt genuine and trustworthy and you just conveyed that energy so perfectly you felt like like oh this is an ally yeah well this is that's that's a big compliment that's exactly the kind of work i've always tried to do is make it real make it believable you know and make it funny you know i mean it's and the fact that you weren't even actually cast for that and we're told days prior is just it makes it even more amazing yeah it's funny because they actually you know, right in the in the beginning, there's a scene, or there was one of the first days we shot in the museum when they take Howard to the museum, and there's there's Dr. Chapin is in that, mm-hmm. and the guy has a lab coat and it says Dr. Chapin. I forget. I think it's I think it may be Tommy uh, uh, Tommy Swerdlow's character is Dr. Chapin. You know, and Phil Blumbert, uh, who Tim Robbins' character. I mean, that's a mutual friend of Gloria Willard's and mine, a guy named Phil Blumberg, and we're still friends. <laughs> And they sneak, awesome. they, they sneak that name into all their movies in uh, the Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom when they're at the table eating the monkey brains and there's that British colonel, that's Colonel Blumbert. It's little Hitchcock moments, you know, so, you know, when the principal photography ended, uh, it was midsummer and I went to Martha's Vineyard. Uh, with some friends and Martha's Vineyard, it was like a pretty high powered party. I was in at Martha's Vineyard. There's you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, I don't need to tell you who goes to, I mean, Barack Obama's there now, right? So I'm telling stories. People said, well, you know, you, where have you been in California working on Howard, Howard the Duck like this? And I started telling these stories and it was like everybody was, oh my God. And one of the editors of Time magazine came over and he said, listen, would you like to write this for the magazine? 
And I said, well, no, I don't really phone. And then somebody else came over and he said, you know, I'm at Random House. Would you like a book deal? Because we'd like to hear about it. And I said, like, guys, if I write this book, I'll never work in Hollywood again. It's like I'll burn every bridge, you know, because it's, yeah. it's just it, I was fresh off of it and just like, you know, I really needed to shake it off because it was it was a very intense experience, you know, and then having it be uh, as much of a stinker as it was. I mean, look at my, my movie career never really sort of uh, Milos was the only person who kind of would hire me after that, you know, and it was funny. That was when I began to write. And I mean, that was why I started writing was I wanted to take more control of, of my own creative life a little bit, you know, so, you know, it's just funny. It's just the path that uh, people's careers go in, you know. Yeah, I wanted to talk about your relationship with uh, uh, Milos Foreman, because um, you, you worked like dating back to 1979 with hair, then the yeah. versus Larry Flint and then Man yeah. on the Moon, of course. Yeah. Was that, is there a particular memory uh, about working with him you'd like to share? Uh, Foreman, I, I mean, I think anybody who's ever worked with Milos Foreman has many stories to tell about Milos Foreman. And, and Larry Karajewski and Skyla Alexander and I, you know, we get together and we tell stories. I mean, Milos was one of the most charismatic people you would ever encounter. Um, uh, I had met Milos years ago in the 60s because my father was working at Lincoln Center when they started the New York Film Festival and I used to go to the screenings and that was where Milos Foreman's American career with uh, 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 the Fireman's Ball uh, and that was how he got out of Czechoslovakia. So I had actually met him uh, and then through various things, screen testing for hair and then getting the part and then being on the set, I finally, after a while, I said, you know, we have met before. And he said, you know, we meet before. And I said, uh, oh, another thing is everybody who's worked with Milos Foreman does an imitation of him because he's a, a very distinctive way of speaking. And I said, well, actually, um, you know, I'm Skylar Chapin's son. And we met at the, you know, the film festival. And he looked and he goes, I did not make this connection. Oh, my, my goodness. Yes, yes, like this. So I, I think we, we kind of, we, we connected. Um, and then when we were doing um, French postcards in, in Paris, he came to judge the, the French film festival and uh, uh, the Paris film festival. And we had dinner a couple of times. And uh, that was, uh, I mean, the, the first night that Deborah Winger was in New York, because always Milos loves women. I do too, but it's always easier when you're with Milos to have a lot of women around. So Deborah Winger had just shown in. I never met her, but I put a note under her door in the hotel saying, hi, listen, would you like to have dinner with some friends tonight? So she came out to dinner with Mikhail Baryshnikov, Milos Foreman, and myself, Tanya and Marina Vladi, the Vladi sisters, who were these Czech actresses that were very Nouvelle Vogue in the 60s. You know, just one of those magical things. I'm actually, I'm not working on the book, but I'm, I want to write a book, sort of memoirs based on great meals that I've had. Because, you know, I mean, I've written a lot about food for like food magazines and stuff. And that dinner uh, is, is going to be one of the chapters because it's going to be the chapter about movies and about, you know, just these magical things. And then again, when we were shooting Howard the Duck, when we were shooting that sequence uh, on, on stage where Howard comes out with the little guitar and the band is rocking and stuff, I had dinner with Milos that night because Michael Chandler, who was the, um, uh, the editor of Howard the Duck, edited a lot of Milos' movies. So we went, I met him out at Berkeley that night and he was like, so what is this duck? What is going on with this duck? Like this. And then with um, People versus Larry Flint, I mean, I got a call from the casting director and they said, you know, Milos is doing a new movie and he's got a role for you and he wants to talk to you. Are you, are you good with that? And I said, fuck yeah, of course I'm good with that. So they sent me the script 
And then I had a, I had a meeting in Milos's apartment, which was like way top in Hampshire House with his gorgeous view of Central Park. And that was before there were a lot of tall buildings with gorgeous views of Central Park. And so basically, we just sort of chatted for 45 minutes. And uh, we talked about Joseph Conrad. Uh, I mean, I don't know why, just, you know, about writers. And then he goes, oh, did you read the script? And I said, yeah, of course I read the script. What do you think? And I said, well, it's just an amazing story. I had no idea about Larry Flynn. He goes, yes, 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 yes. That's why I want to make this movie. So are you in? You want to be in it? And I said, of course I want to be in it. What do you want me to play? He goes, I don't know. We'll figure that out later, you know. <laughs> and that's why I think I'm credited. My character's name is is Milo or Miles or something. Uh, uh, yeah, it's yeah. yeah, because it's like. I'm that guy. But it was funny because Milos would say, because he's very improvisatory, you know? And and uh, I mean, I learned that the first day I was actually in front of a camera with him because uh, a slight, hope this isn't too boring actor story. You know, he shoots with multiple cameras, right? So it was a scene where in here, where like, you know, they, these hippies invade this party and we're all these socialites. So one of these guys says to me, you know, see that gentleman over there, go and ask him what he's doing here. So it's HUD, it's this Dorsey Wright, this big, huge, very intimidating and very black gentleman, right? And I go out and I'm like, hi, how you doing? Are you guys supposed to be here? And Milos was shooting like this with two cameras. So we did a take and Milos goes, cut, 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 cut. And he walks over to me and he puts his arm around me. He starts walking me away. And I thought, oh, fuck, here we go. I'm in for it. He goes, he goes, you know, you're making faces and you're, you're doing all this, this stuff. And I don't get it. I mean, just, it's very simple. You just like, like, like walk in, talk, look him in the eye, say what you're going to say and then walk away. Very, very simple. Don't act, please. Just, just be like this. No acting. And then, and then I was just like, oh. This is this is the capper because I was like so depressed and he takes like three or four steps away and he stops and he turns around and he looks me in the eye and he goes, he's good, but he's too much like this. I mean, come on, you know, for an actor it's basically like, let me come up to you. Let me hit you in the jaw and then you're on the floor, but let me pick you up, dust you off and say, and you're the only person who can be in this race. Go. Yeah. And from then on, it's like a magic carpet ride with Milich Foreman. So like, you know, I'm, I did that sh one shot in uh, Man on the Moon and it's me and Lorne Michaels. You know, I'm playing a network executive and we're standing by watching, you know, and, and uh, it's all improvised. I mean, this is dead air. I mean, that's an improvised, you know, nice. and, and a lot of my stuff in hair is is an improvisation, too. And I say, hey, Milos, I, I watched that on TV. Yeah. I mean, I was at home watching that. No, but. So Lorne Michaels, I'm playing with Lorne Michaels. And, and Lorne Michaels says to me, well, what do you want me to do? And he goes, I don't know, ask Miles. So Lorne Michaels turns to me and he goes, what are we supposed to do? And I said, well, I don't know. I mean, this is what we're doing and this is the scene. So, you know, we'll just watch and he'll keep the cameras rolling. And if you feel like saying anything, you know, I mean, I got a couple of things I might lay on you and you can react. Watch, watch just watch me, Lorne. I'll teach you a thing or two about comedy. <laughs> <laughs> I do it all the time. <laughs> I'll teach you about comedy, exactly. Now, you also, you also had the opportunity to work with the great uh, Toby Hooper, who also recently passed away in 2017. Toby, yeah, yeah. You you played uh, Rick, Richard uh, Richie Atterbury in his right. 1981 film The Fun House. That's right. I, I actually never knew that that guy had a last name, but thank you for enlightening me. That's <laughs> you, do <all> research. <laughs> you do, you do, yeah. Toby Hooper, the Madman. Yes. What was it like to uh, work with him? And you actually, uh -oh. if I need to, you kind of been over this because you did the 2011 uh, miles of mayhem yeah yeah yeah. Documentary. yeah which i've never seen you know I, I when you sent me that in preparation for this 
I was going to say, what is that? I've never heard of that. And then I remember Colin Waddell is this wonderful Scotsman who does these editions uh, and he is a loves horror films. And I really love the guy. And I remember doing the interview, uh, but I never saw it cut together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, to to go ahead. No, go ahead. No, please, please. Well, no, Toby is Toby is amazing. And I, I sort of the same thing with Toby because because, you know, there were there were the, the I guess the, the four of us, you know, in the in the in the in the funhouse group. Right. And, um, and and Toby, you know, had a lot going on and, you know, especially with outdoors, with the carnival and, you know, all these extras and stuff. And Toby's not the most articulate guy in the world, you know. And uh, so he would come down and he would say, all right, kids, here's how we go. I'm going to start with the camera on the boom and then we're going to like walk with you through the thing. And then it's going to go like, whoosh, 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 whoosh. and then I want you to like spiderish around here. And then we're going to move up and then kind of like skitter around. But don't, you know, don't block. Don't cover yourself like that. And then we're going to start up here and I need you to like land here and like like that. Can you do that? And and I'd say, yeah, Toby, we can do that. We can do that. And then I'd say, okay, guys, this is what he's saying, okay? We're going to, like, you know, keep a loose formation, but hit the marks because when the camera's up, he needs to see us in this place. Right, Toby? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Listen to him, you know? So, and every filmmaker needs that translator that's actually inside their head where they expect everybody else to be. Well, you know, I've never directed. I would love to. But, I mean, I know how to work with actors. I don't know grammar cinematic grammar you know i mean stanley donnan is, was a friend of mine and i used to talk to him and just say stanley you invented a certain kind of film grammar i mean you know the your cutting your 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 edits the way you know your shots you know i mean just you invented something and um but a lot of these directors they don't know how to talk to actors you know and then they take an acting class and they think that they know about actors and it's 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 a different bag altogether you know it really is so yeah. And, and a lot of them get intimidated, too. So it's it's uh, it's weird. So, I mean, I've been able to, you know, kind of, I don't know, Venn diagrams overlap or something. I mean, I've just been able to understand from other people's point of view what they need to do. You know, I mean, yeah, it's funny. Know. Once I got a compliment from the editor of French Postcards once and she said, you know, it's she said it's amazing working with you because um, I basically can use the soundtrack from any take on any take. And yet each one is completely different. And I said, really? And she said, yeah, I said, good, because that's what I'm trying to do. Because I understand that if I if I put the thing down and look up, that that could be a cut point And you need to know that, you know, and so a lot of actors, if it's like, if we know that you're going to edit something a certain way, you're going to calibrate your performance for that. You know, it's not like the stage where you go and you recreate it every night. I mean, you do all your homework for movies and then the, when you're on the set, you let it all go because who knows, it, it, the sun may be in your eyes and, and that's that's the thing you're dealing with. You, you can't prepare for that. You got to have these big and you know, if they're going to do a close up and then an ultra close up and then a super ultra close up, you know, that's when the tear is going to come out of your eye. Don't lose it on that. You know, don't don't you know shoot your wad on this. So it's 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 technique. That's all. Now I wanted to know did the name Murphy ring a bell because you actually acted with the actual Robocop, Mr. Peter Weller, in 1975's Broadway yeah. production of Summer Break. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I love Peter Weller. Peter Weller is one of the coolest guys you're ever going to meet. Okay, Peter Weller. First of all, Peter Weller loved me because of my name because he's like one of the world's greatest jazz fans and he loves Miles Davis. So when I told him if my mother and, and my grandmother were both men, my name would be Miles Davis, because that was my grandmother's maiden name. He said, you're in. Um, <laughs> I introduced Peter to Bob Marley, 
I drove him down to Washington for that play we did, and I had the early Bob Marley tapes, and he'd never heard oh, reggae. I'm it sorry, was I thought it was like cold, like I no, no, not it. I, I, didn't, I didn't know. I was say, hey. You're the man. <laughs> no, I didn't introduce him personally. I never met Bob Marley, but you know, I put this music on. He goes, "Whoa, what is this?" And I said, "This is a Jamaican style of music. This is, you know, Bob Marley." Uh, but he's a pretty, he's a pretty slick dude, you know. Um, and also in the in the scene of New York actors in that era, he's like a couple of years older than I am. So I was like in the punk kid crew, but I'd see him and like Mark Metcalf at auditions, Sissy Spacek. You know, and then you're talking about that continuum. There was a, an agent who later became a manager named Bill Trash, who worked very closely with a casting woman named Marion Doherty. Um, and it gets very incestuous. Uh, and, you know, we'd all kind of, you know, casting directors have their actors that they like, and you'd see the same people. So I sort of had seen Peter Weller, um, and he played the straight guy in the play that we did. He was, he was you know, the, 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 the square, you know, and he's not a square at all. He's like, you know, a real hipster. And then I see him occasionally, you know, and he's sort of like, oh, so what are you up to now? This kind of thing, you know, very distant, very distant. But uh, I had to break up a fight with him once. Really? Absolutely like... true. Yeah, he, he came into our dressing room. I was sharing the dressing room and he had some bone to pick with the guy. And he started, he started like shaking him like this. And I had to pull him off this guy. And then like the next day he came and he liked my aftershave. I had bay rum aftershave. So he used to shave and come in and say, can I have some of that hillbilly shit? And I'd give him this bay rum, right? And then one day he had these, these bruises on his arm. And I say, wow, man, how did you get those bruises? And he looked at me and he said, you don't remember how I got these bruises? And I said, no. And he goes, well, a certain guy grabbed my arm and pulled me off another certain guy. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I forget. Don't know my own strength. No, you, you believe me. If you've ever broken up a fight, you don't know your own strength, you know? So let me get this straight. You've told Robin Williams to shut the fuck up and you saved the man from RoboCop. <laughs> I think you're yeah. the coolest guy. I, mean, I, mean, I never so, thought of it that way, but these are these are true stories. You know, there's one movie. There's one movie we haven't talked about. Which, if you if it's not on your guys' radar screen, it should be. It's a movie called Get Crazy. You ever heard of that movie? No. All right, Get Crazy because the Get Crazy the the Criterion I think it's Criterion Blu-ray edition is coming out. This is one of the most crazy movies I was ever in. Alan Arkish was the director. And I did, I did one of these with Alan for, and I just signed the release for the Blu-ray edition. It's a rock and roll fantasy movie that has, oh my God, I, I, mean, I can't even get into the cast. It's, it's you know. Oh, it's out. Do you know Trailers from Hell? Do you know that website? Yeah, well, yes. Okay, go to Trailers from Hell. And Alan does his own trailer from hell about Get Crazy because it's a rock and roll fantasy movie that got dumped by the studio because the studio had to lose money. They couldn't make money. And they put it out at the end of August with the worst ad campaign in the world. And it is a really cool movie. Daniel Stern, Malcolm McDowell, uh, I mean, uh, John Densmore. I, I, I mean, this, the cast is, um, Lou Reed is in it. I mean, come on, you know, okay. Lou Reed basically plays Bob Dylan. You know, Malcolm McDowell plays Mick Jagger. Sparks was in it. I mean, come on, this is like, you know, very cool movie. Like Velvet Underground, Lou Reed? Wow. See, well, like, hey, it's, it's going to be a perfect day then. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's a really, really good movie. I screened it for a charity that I'm on the board of uh, a couple of years ago. We got a print of it and it holds up really, really well. I mean, it'll blow your mind, this movie. And if you see it, uh, send me an email and tell me what you think about it. I will. Because it, it's sure. like, it is, I mean, you know, Alan Arkish, he did Rock and Roll High School. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's that, it's that 
sensibility. And it was just like every day was sort of like, oh, my God, where are we going today? You know, well, who's going to be on the set today? Oh, today I'm doing a scene with Fabian and Bobby Sherman. Cool. Here we go. Oh, it's Ed Bagley Jr. is going to throw me out of a helicopter. Cool. Let's go. You know. That sounds, yeah. Very I'll fun. definitely check that. I love, yeah. I, I love movies like that that are, well, that are underrated, underappreciated. This is like, like unknown. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a very special thing that you can have with it. Some something to make something more appealing when the whole world is in on its dick. Like, okay, I can. There's room for me. Um, in uh, let's see. So you asked a question, and I completely cut you off. I'm sorry. Did I? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> this is the, uh, the the 20th anniversary since your last film credit play in uh, Giles 2001's uh, Giles in 2001's Lightning Fire from the Sky. Right. Um, so I have a three-parter question here. Mm -hmm. Looking back at your career and all the amazing people you've worked with, is there a particular memory that stays closest to your heart? Part two is what ultimately led to your decision to move on? And part three, what are you doing now? Ah, That's um, a load of questions, man. Yeah, really. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I can't think of one particular memory. I mean, the thing is, like, in the morning when I'm waking up and I'm in the shower, you know, like this morning, I was thinking about Howard the Duck because we were going to talk about it. And I just have one of those memories that just all this shit comes out. And it's just like I remember meals, conversations, parties, people, arguments, you know, locations. I remember clothing that I had. I looked at these photos today for the first time. I was like, I remember that shirt. I remember I bought those pants, you know, like this. Um, amazing. Just amazing. Um, thing about looking back at pictures sometimes like oh man where the hell did that shirt go <laughs> right exactly well actually one of those that i showed you i still have that shirt <laughs> so what was what was what was but what was part two part two is uh part two was what ultimately led you to the decision to actually move on well you know i i you ever heard the expression how are you going to keep them down on the farm once they've seen paris you know i mean when you've done some of the projects that I've worked on and you work with some of the people I've worked with to to go in to like a meeting with a guy just out of film school who looks at the resume and goes oh my god look at all these people you worked with my god my god my god and then I my agent will say well you know they really 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 want you in the movie but they don't have anything for you so will you play like uh, desk clerk number two for mm -hmm. scale plus 10 and I did a couple of those and I thought no Fuck it. I don't want to do that. I don't care. you got something good for me to do. I'll do it. You don't have to pay me. I'll pay you. But I don't want to play desk clerk number two, third mortician, you know, and it and I also wanted to live in New York and I also wanted a life. Uh, you know, I wanted kids and I wanted I mean, I didn't know I wanted kids, but that's what I did. You know, so I got married, had kids and then got divorced, but still have the kids. They're both here. Um, and um, it's sort of like it's like I never left it. It kind of left me in a way. Um, uh, but I still, I mean, I love performing. Um, I, I also, you know, anybody who's an actor is always an actor. You always think, oh, I'm just ready, you know, ready for my close up, Mr. DeBille, you know, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to be Gloria Swanson, but I mean, come on here, you know, but it's, well, it's, it's it says a lot for you about how, how, I mean, you not only gracefully transitioned from a child actor to an acting as an adult, but then you also like so many people make a mistake of not knowing when to yeah well you know and it seems like you're doing well now and thank you chapter this is yeah well there's also a lot of bullshit to that because actors will say oh i turned this down and i turned that down i actually have never heard 
of an actor turning down a bona fide offer for a part in anything when they were available. Because actors act, that's what they do. Now, actors will say, oh, my agent sent me the script and I hated it. Yeah, that's not turning it down. That's saying, I'll take a pass on it, you know. I mean, those lists I was showing you of who did the voice for Howard the Duck, those people just passed. Christopher Guest, not interested. Don't even send me the script, you know. Did he pass on the voice of Howard the Duck? Well, yes, but no, not really. Mm -hmm. um, and you just, you know, in a, in a way, you just want to be on the list. And I was, I was, I wasn't on the list. I was just, I mean, there was a couple of things that I didn't get that I wanted. In fact, one of them was with Milos, with which was uh, Mozart and Amadeus, you know, because I did three screen tests for that. And, uh, and then he hired Tommy Hulse, who is exactly one year to the day older than I am, same birthday. And Tom was, well, I, I, don't, I couldn't have been better than Tom Hulse. And then one time when we were shooting Larry Flint, um, they were setting up a shot and uh, Milos, uh, he liked to smoke cigars and, and I like to smoke men too. And they knew we were buddies. So they would say, okay, we're going to need 20 minutes. So Miles Milos, you know, go into the stairwell because we were shooting in Larry Flint's office. You go have a smoke and we'll call you when we're ready. So Milos and I were just sort of bullshitting in the stairwell. And I, I finally said, Milos, I got to ask you a question. Why didn't you cast me as Mozart and Amadeus? And he had the most perfect response. He had a cigar in his mouth without even missing a beat. He took out his cigar. He goes, because you have too much class. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's it. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, so, you know, you, you gotta have, you gotta have, this work is guts ball. It's, it's, you gotta, you gotta have your passions in gear and you gotta be very, as a human being, very careful with your passions and where you put mm -hmm. it and what you do with it, because it can end up stinging you like a, like a, like a scorpion. And, um, I, like Howard the Duck. I mean, I put a heart and soul and everything into that movie and Thudsville, you know, and I've never been in a hit. That's the thing. I mean, some of them are cults and stuff. And we all know that there's, you know, a lot of actors who were in a lot of hits and kind of modestly talented, you know, maybe not the greatest actor in the world, you know, I'm not the greatest actor in the world, but at least I can hold my own and I can hold my head up, you know. So and that you're kind part of film history, man. You're literally a part of film. Like I said, you can say the movie, yeah, financially, but, but we live we saw this when we were three years old and we're talking about <laughs> it. We're thirty what, we're thirty-eight now, we're thirty-eight years old. So yeah. it's still the test of time, man. Yeah. Well thank so, you. Hey, thank you. How many movies have come out since then that people yeah. are like, oh, it's okay, I'll never watch it again. Well, actually, <laughs> that's funny. I got that reminds me of a story. We were we were having lunch once on the set of French postcards, and one of the actors in the movie had just gotten out of acting school and was just up to here with acting school stuff and was sort of pretentiously saying at lunch, you know, I love doing movies because it lasts. My work will be forever. And, you know, on the stage, poof, it's gone. You know, this, this incredibly pretentious thing. And Bruno Nuiten, the cameraman who had hair down to here, you know, with leather jackets and stuff, he's like eating his soup and he looks up and goes, no, it won't. <laughs> and, and and the actor said, "What do you mean it goes?" So he goes, "We're using Kodak thirty six twenty six film emulsion. It only lasts two years, you know. Unless oh somebody God. makes an inner negative and does this, uh, this is not forever. It's not going to last, that you know." Wow. And then Willard, same lunch, like a week later, Willard had this panic attack. He said, "How am I going to get the negative of this movie back to L.A.?" And Bruno Nuitin again looks up and said, "It's very easy. You put the negative in the bottom of the plane. You fly in the top of the plane. You fly together." Yeah, my brilliant. Keep it simple. Yeah, simple. Okay, so what am I doing now? I'm I'm just making a living. Uh, I work as a real estate agent uh, in New York City. I mean, I'm I'm like ten generations in New York, so I know a lot of people, and I've been doing that for like 
20 years now. And the thing, like any, like any endeavor, you know, you're going to get out of it what you put into it. And so I started doing this work 20 years ago because the time was flexible and I could go on location, I could do this stuff. And then it's just become all consuming because, you know, I'm a single parent and, um, you know, I've got two kids. Mercifully, they're both through college now. Um, and it's, it's been a struggle, I mean, just financially. So that's what I do. But I like it because, you know, I took on a new challenge, you know, and I was like, how old was I? I was like in my 40s, I guess, late 40s when I started doing that. And, you know, you learn a new set of muscles and you learn some new skills. Also, some performance skills help with that work. Not yeah. that I learn how to lie, which is what all people think. Oh, real estate agents, actors, liars. No, most it has to do with how the audience is taking what I'm saying. You know, mm -hmm. if I'm trying to tell you that this is the greatest like apartment in the world and you're not buying it, I'm not going to keep banging that dead horse. You know, it's right, like I'm right. gonna shift gears. So yeah, that's I'm basically what I'm doing. Salesman, because even I mean, even if I love something and I'm telling the truth about how much I love it, it comes it, across my name. It's like it's like uh, you don't sound very excited about it. No, that's good. It's, well, yeah. I do. See, I get I get fired up. I get very passionate. I mean, I wrote a, I wrote a book about Steinway pianos, how they're made. And for about two or three years, the company hired me as a sales uh, uh, associate. And I was like flying all over the country, you know, doing lectures around my book. And it was like, it was, there was no sales pitch involved, but just my enthusiasm for the product and for music and stuff. And they ended up selling a lot of pianos, you know, and that's, that's what it takes, you know. So. That's the 88 keys, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Good book. So. Um, before, uh, I want to ask if you were to be locked in a room for a year and forced to watch a single movie of your choosing on repeat, and we put it this way because we're not looking for the pretentious like film critic answer, like the movie that, that you know, we want to know what movie would you be willing to watch over and over again for you a mean year that you love but to that degree? A movie that I'm in. Oh, no, just in any movie. Any movie? Any movie? Yeah. Well... Local Hero is the movie that I watch over and over and over again. And every time I see it, I see something new in it. And I just, you know, it's my favorite movie and I can, I can never get enough of it. It's so subtle and it's so brilliant. I've never did, even heard of it. Meaning Local Hero? Oh, it's a Scottish film. The filmmaker's named Bill Forsyth. He did uh, Gregory's Girl and That Sinking Feeling. And then he, he made a big movie with Robin Williams that was a huge flop, even, even bigger than bigger Hello. flop than Howard the Duck. But uh, Local Hero, it stars Peter Riegert and uh, Burt Lancaster uh, and a, a cast of English actors who have, you know, one or two of them have gone on to, you know, good careers. Um, but it's this absolutely charming movie about Peter Riegert plays an executive at an oil company in Texas who's sent to Scotland basically to buy this town because they want to rip the town up and put in an oil refinery. And he gets to Scotland and he just falls in love with Scotland. And all those weird Scottish characters, and then there's this Russian comes. I mean, it's it's and Mark Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits does the mm -hmm. soundtrack, and it's just it's really good. Peter Riegert's one of my favorite actors, and it's it's it's. So I can, got two movies to check out now. Thank you. Yeah, I can watch that forever. Now, uh, before we say goodbye, um, are there any parting words? life advice, a song, a poem, a joke, anything at all that you would like to share into the internet world that we live in now? Well, you, you said it, man. Keep it simple. Keep, you know, when I used to do plays, I, I learned this from an actor that I worked with. You take the lipstick and you write on the mirror, K-I-S-S. -S. Keep it simple, stupid.
yes. And when we, yeah. we overthink things, man, we cannot do that. We get out of our element. Like, what do the football players say, man? I just got into the That's game, right. slowed down, or right. I blacked out if I was an actor. Like, you're in that yeah. moment. Keep it yeah. simple. Keep it simple. That's it. And if and don't lie because that complicates things. And my uncle Henry Steinway, he used to talk about, you know, people would say, how come Steinway, you know, never made guitars? And he said, because we stuck to the knitting. Stick to the knitting, you know? Yeah. We don't make guitars. Wow. We make pianos. That's it. <laughs> Congratulations yes. on your entire career from acting oh, and you. beyond and the writing and uh, <laughs> everything. I mean, you just, and, and, the, and the duck coaching. And you. Everything, the duck coaching is where it's at, man. And there's a, there's a dead end. For, <laughs> for taking the time for us today. I really appreciate it. I mean, all the pictures that you brought out, the jacket, it was yeah. such a pleasure. It was uh, great it's to fun. be with you. I appreciate it. A lot of fun. Um, Wow, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate you taking time. Like the, the stories. Listen, I will never let anybody talk bad about duck coaching for the rest of my life. <laughs> you are or the duck. Many people talking bad about duck coaching. No, but I, they won't be. Not on my watch. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much again. Tough. Be safe out there. If you need anything, let us know. We'll be talking to you soon. Okay. Cool. We'll do. Take care, guys. Right, thank you. Bye.